Um, guys, I'm excited to wrap up uh, this series that we started a few weeks ago on uh, the presence of God with us. What does it mean that God is with us? So we've been going to with University for the last few weeks, and we're going we're gonna to wrap it all up today and talk about what does it mean uh, that God is with us and in a really broad sense. We're going to go from Genesis to Revelation today, so we're going to be here for a while, guys. Just, just get comfortable. I'm just kidding. It'll be normal uh, length of time. But uh, the goal is to kind of get a big picture view of what this looks like and to understand what it means for us to find ourselves in this story and uh, to, to understand, like, when we say God is with us, does that mean, like, you can be with somebody from a distance. I can be like, Justin, I see you. I'm with you, man. Or you can be with somebody really close, like the person you're sitting right next to, you're with them because of the proximity, right? So what we're going to talk about is, is withness um, in our relationship with God is, is kind of like living under the same roof with somebody. You know what that's like, living under the same roof with somebody gives you a unique perspective on that person's life and a unique relationship with them as a result. So, you, you know, how, how did, however you grew up, maybe you grew up with siblings in your house and there was this unique withness that you have um, with those siblings because uh, you, you get to see behind the scenes and you know things about them nobody else knows and you have experiences and conversations and, and in my home it was fights. We had there were fights and my sisters, I'm pretty sure, tried to kill me a couple times. Um, not that I deserved it at all, but they did. Um, and then, so there's that kind of living under the same roof. Then <clears throat> I think about my uh, college roommate and that was a different kind of witness because at first we don't really know each other that well. It's not like we have the same parents and grew up together. But then there's this guy just sleeping six feet away from me every night. And you're like, all right, I guess we're going to have to get, uh, get to know each other well. And uh, that was a very unique relationship. And, and I still have good friendships with some of my college roommates even today because you're kind of, you're forced into this same space and you're sharing some similar experiences, Right. My mom lived with us uh, for a few years, and so she got to develop a special withness in, in her relationship with my sons. And so they have this really unique, I think, uh, relationship with my mom because we lived under the same roof together for a while. And she was very different when my kids were living under the same roof with her than when I was living under the same roof with her when I was their age. Um, and, uh, and they love her, and she's great. So there, there's a lot of different kinds of of relationships that are formed when you share this space, when you live under the same roof with somebody, you develop this kind of closeness and you see behind the scenes. And what God has invited us into, we've been talking about this from the beginning of this series, that there's a declaration and, a, and an invitation. The declaration is, I am with you. I am with you. And the invitation is, will you be with me? Will you be with me? And so we're going to kind of explore that from Genesis to Revelation today. We're going to find ourselves in the story of God with us and see what, what does it mean to live under the same roof with God uh, as our father. So uh, let's begin with Eden. We remember that uh, as we talked in the first week in, in Eden, God created human beings for a relationship with him. And so um, these, these green uh, houses today are going to represent God's kingdom. Where, where his rule and reign are absolute, where everyone who's in that space acknowledges him as the authority over all the earth and the good father to all humans. That's, that's what the green the greenhouses are going to represent today. And so then there's a space where humans live. And so when God initially, when he created humans, uh, he created a space where there could be some overlap 
between humans and God. And this space was called Eden. So there's, there's all of creation, and then there's this special place where God is going to meet with human beings. And some, some incredible things happen in that space. God's presence is, is in that space. His glory is in that space. We'll talk more about the glory of God uh, here in a bit. And in that space, God provides for and protects human beings. God has authority over their lives to tell them what's good and bad, right and wrong. And in that space, human beings are invited and welcomed. They are free from guilt and shame and fear in, in this space. And this is what Adam and Eve got to enjoy, right? But then they made a choice that said, we, we don't want God to be in charge of what's right and wrong for us. We want to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. And when they chose to not let God have the authority over their lives and their choices, they, they actually, they got kicked out of the garden. They got moved out. So they can't be in this space anymore where they're sharing space with the kingdom of God. They're no longer invited into the presence to experience the glory. They're, they're no longer provided for and protected in the same way. And now, now they're going to have to work harder for, for food and, and things like that. And they're no longer free from guilt and shame and fear. Now, whenever they encounter God in different ways, human beings for, for the next uh, gen few generations, there, there's some guilt and there's shame and there's fear in their encounters with God because of this choice to move out. They just moved out, right? Like rebellious teenagers, they said, we don't, we don't think our parents know what they're talking about. We don't want them telling us what to do. We're out. That's what they did. And, and they paid the consequences for that. And there's this separation. The good news is God is not content with this situation. He's not content with a separation. He wants witness. That's what he created human beings for, was to be with them. And when human beings moved out, God said, I'm not okay with this. We're not going to leave it like that. So then we talked in the next week about Abraham and how God chose this man and his family and he established a covenant that said, I'm, I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people. And out of all the people on earth, we're gonna have witness and you and your family get to reflect to the rest of the world what life with God looks like. You get to be that. And, and so Abraham and his family are learning this relationship, what this covenant looks like for God to be their God and for them to be his people. And they learn that it's difficult. Their part of the, their, their part of the deal is, is that God gets to decide. He gets to be in charge. He's going to protect. He's going to provide. He's going he's gonna to show up and his presence is going to be, be there. But, but we have to let him be Lord. And we have to let him be the one who decides what's good and bad and what's right and wrong and where we go and what we do. And it was difficult. But they really didn't get to experience the full presence of God until after God uh, leads the descendants of Abraham, who are, are now just hundreds of thousands of people out of slavery, 400 years of slavery in the land of Egypt, and he, he, he draws them out, takes them by the hand, and leads them out of slavery in Egypt and into the desert where he then commands Moses to build this thing called a tabernacle. And uh, let's look at a couple verses. In Exodus 25.8 is when God tells Moses, uh, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God says, I want to move in. I want to move into your camp, to your territory. I want to be where you are. And so Moses is commanded to build this tabernacle 
that is going to allow God to have a place among the people again. So we're going to get a, another opportunity for some overlap between the kingdom of God and the people of God. And so the tabernacle would kind of sit in this space, right, right there in that overlap, where God is going to show up and be with his people. In, in Exodus 29, uh, here's what God says about the tabernacle. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. So the glory of God is going to show up. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. And I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. So that's the, that's the goal. God says, I want witness. But, but this witness is very limited. And it's limited because of sin and death. So when Adam and Eve sinned, I got a thing up here. There it is. So there's a, a space here we, we would call the fall. When Adam and Eve chose to reject God's authority over their lives, there's, there's the fall, and that brings sin and death into the world. And so now this, this witness is limited. So in the tabernacle, there's, a, there's one place where God really shows up. So God told Moses to build this. It's a big tent, and it's portable, and they're going to take it with them as they move around. But it's very specifically designed. So this is kind of a, a professional artist drawing of the tabernacle here. And uh, so you've got the, the, the border is the courts, and then there's, a, there's an altar here, and there's a wash basin here. And then this is, this is the holy place here, and then there's a place called the holy of holies, the most holy place, the holiest place on earth is right there. And in the holiest place on earth, there's a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. And the top of the golden box is called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where the presence of God actually shows up. And so God is going to be with people, but it's going to be very limited because he's only going to show up in this one place because it's, it's holy. It's been set apart. It's been sanctified. And the only people that can go into that place the only person is the high priest, and he only goes in once a year. So this is not like Eden. You remember Eden when God was just with them, and they could kind of come and go, and they were there was no guilt or shame or fear. But because of sin and death, now we have to deal with death at the altar on the, on the outside. Uh, we deal with sin and death there. And then the, the priest can come into the holy place, and then the, only the high priest can go into the most holy place. So this is very limited. But it's better than nothing, right? So in 1 Kings, uh, we see that Solomon is going to build a permanent tabernacle. So this is a tent that they can pack up and move around. Solomon wants a building made of stone and wood. So Solomon builds a temple that's based on the same design. And he builds this in Jerusalem, the city where, where the capital of the nation of Israel. And uh, then when he builds it and they move the Ark of the Covenant in, then God uh, shows up in the temple, in this permanent tabernacle that they built. And here's, here's what it says about when God showed up in 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11. When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So when God shows up, it is, it is big and it is dramatic and it is overwhelming to the human senses. Human beings, they just, they just can't even really stand to be in the, the presence of God. It's kind of like the sun. You know, the sun is great from here, right? It brings us warmth and heat and, you know, a lot of heat and it's more heat, right? But the closer you get to it, the more dangerous it sort of becomes, right? And you can only get so close before the sun will just straight up kill you, not because it doesn't like you, but just because it's so powerful. And when the glory of God shows up, people can't, 
They can't be in the presence. It's so powerful, they can't be near it. And the glory of God shows up in the temple. So the people of Israel live for hundreds of years with this system where there's this, there's this little bit of overlap between the kingdom of God and living under God's roof and recognizing God is, is he's, he's the one who's in charge. He made us. He gets to decide what's right and wrong. And the people, their job is to keep the law under the system. And what they find is they can't, they can't do it. They just can't keep the law. Uh, I, I mean, they, they, they can't even keep the, the main 10. They just pick 10 out of the 613 laws, that, and they can't even keep the 10. It's just difficult. It's hard. It's actually impossible for human beings. And so they live in this very limited witness for a while. The good news is God is not content with this. God, this is not God's end game. It's not his final plan. And so here's what God tells the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 37, about, about sort of this plan and then what's coming next. God says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. More, forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So God tells Ezekiel, I want you to tell everyone that there's going to be another covenant. He's already made a covenant with Abraham. You remember this? That's what they're living under. The temple and the tabernacle are all part of that covenant with Abraham. And God says, but there's going to be a new covenant. The covenant with Abraham was temporary. It was never intended to last forever. The new covenant is going to be eternal, everlasting covenant. And God says, when the new covenant comes, he says, my dwelling place shall be with them. And the word that he uses in verse 27 for dwelling place is the same word for this, this tent that they moved around all over the place. Tabernacle. God says, my tabernacle will be with them. I, I'm, I'm going to actually open that up. And it, it's going to be a whole new experience for the people. So God says, this, this system, this limited witness, this is not the ideal. This was only temporary. And there's something coming that is going to be better than that. A lot better. And what happens a few hundred years after Ezekiel? Jesus comes. Jesus comes and he is the representation of God on earth. In fact, when, when Jesus comes, John, uh, one of his disciples, is writing about this. And he's trying to explain to people in sort of poetic language what it was like when Jesus left heaven, came to earth. Here's, here's what John says. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word that John uses would have been the same word that, that the Greeks would have used for, for this. Je Jesus came and he, he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent. He, he moved in as the space between God's kingdom and the people uh, of God. So Jesus comes, and he, he creates a new space. I should have had an assistant. Okay, we're good. All right. So Jesus is going to create a new overlapping space between the kingdom of God and the realm of human beings. And John says, we've seen his glory. His glory showed up. Now, when the glory of God showed up in the Old Testament, it was, it was smoke and fire, and it was overwhelming, and it was so powerful, you couldn't hardly get near it. But now the glory of God is in Jesus, who wants to come near. And he, he can touch people. And heal them. And he can speak to people and forgive them. And this is the glory of God among the people. And then Jesus goes to the cross. 
And he deals with sin and death once and for all. And there's no more need for a temple or a tabernacle or the holiest of holies. And he establishes the church. And the church, according to the New Testament, is the place now where the kingdom of God and the realm of humans overlaps. And the church lives right in this space. It's the place where God's presence shows up, where his glory is revealed. The church is the place where God's people are provided for and protected. The church is the place where human beings can come before God without guilt or shame or fear because Jesus has dealt with our sin and death once and for all. That's, that's what the church was created to be. Human beings are welcome here. We're invited to participate with God in the work that he's doing to bring restoration and healing and wholeness. And the church is a holy place. The church is a holy people. In fact, it's so special that there's a lot of strong warnings in the New Testament about anyone who would mess with the church, the people of God. Not the building. I, when I was growing up, I was always told, don't run in church. You can't run in church. Like, this is the place where no running happens. And the translation of that to a six-year-old is no fun in church, right? Because running is fun when you're six. Not anymore, but when you're six, running is fun. And so it was like, well, this building is actually no fun now because I can't run here. Thankfully, this building is not what Jesus was talking about. It's not what Paul is talking about when they refer to the church. They're talking about the people of God. As far as I'm concerned, you can run in church. Now, some of you might want to argue with me about that, but also you're not going to be running. So uh, we'll, we can sort that out later. Um, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 3. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Paul looked at the church in Corinth, and he saw all this division that was happening, and people fighting with each other and battling over, you know, who's right and who's wrong about this issue, and should we allow Gentiles in here, and should we allow the Jews in here, and like all of this fighting, and Paul's like, stop it. You're the church, and the church is holy. The church is the dwelling place of God. The church is the new holiest of holies. It's the holiest place on earth. Disney World's got nothing on us. So Paul says, you've got to preserve and protect the unity of the church because it's holy. Here's, here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 6. Apparently the Corinthians were a little hard-headed so they got this message a couple times. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's straight out of Ezekiel 37. Paul is saying, when God told Ezekiel that there was going to be a new covenant, and under that new covenant, God was going to dwell, he was going to move in with his people, and, 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 and things were going to be completely different. Paul is saying, that's us. We are the fulfillment of that prophecy from Ezekiel. And God is, is making his dwelling place, his presence known among the people of earth through the church. 
There's a lot to, in the New Testament about this. I'm going to keep reading Bible stuff because these guys uh, say it better than me. First Peter. Here's how First Peter tells uh, the believers he's writing to about this. In First Peter 2, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter says, you are a temple, and you're being built. You're growing. There's actually room for more. This is not a limited space here. This is an unlimited. It's, it's open. As many people as we can get into the church, there will be room for them. And as this church is being built up, then we, we are a holy priesthood. You remember in the temple tabernacle system, only the priests could enter into that holiest of holy spaces, and only once a year could the high priest do that. Well, now... The, the veil has been torn and the way has been made open. And now all believers can, can come into this space, into the presence of God. That's what the church is all about. Uh, Paul has more to say about this to the church in Ephesus. So in Ephesians chapter 2, here's what he says. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This, again, this language couldn't be more clear. We, we are a temple. The church of God is a temple. It's a holy place. It's the place where the presence of God and the glory of God show up, where God's rule and reign is absolute, where everyone who's in this space acknowledges Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the one who saved us, so he has the authority to tell us what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what we should do with our lives, what we should do with our time, what we should do with our money, what we should do with our relationships. Jesus is Lord in this space. And everyone who lives here acknowledges and agrees with that because we're under God's roof. So then Jesus gives a sermon. We're going to sh shift gears here a little bit because this, this is like, if you haven't figured out, this is us. This is where we are. This is where we live. This, this is still the, the, the plan. It's not finished yet, but it's the plan, right? When Jesus gives this message to uh, his disciples in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we call this the Sermon on the Mount, okay? And uh, we like to sort of read this. It's a, it's a pretty good sermon, but when you read it, it's like, wow, that's that's, he's asking a lot there. He, there's, there's a lot of expectation. If someone slaps you on one cheek, you're supposed to throat punch them back, right? No, you're supposed to turn the other cheek so they can hit you again, right? If someone asks you to go with them one mile, like a soldier says, carry my shield for a mile, you just go ahead and go two miles, right? Don't, don't do your praying and your fasting and everything for everybody to see, but, but, but be humble, in your spiritual disciplines. Like, all of this is coming in the Sermon on the Mount, but here's how he starts it out. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house in the same way let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So before Jesus tells them how to live, he tells them who they are. And he says, you are salt and light. Okay, so salt in Jesus' day wasn't just something you sprinkle on your french fries uh, to give them a little more flavor, right? Salt was used in a different way. 
it, you would take some meat, like maybe a, a fish or something. Like if you just leave that fish out on the countertop for a couple of days, what's going to happen? Oh, so you're going to regret that, guys. Just don't do that. So what they would do is they would, they would wrap that fish up in salt, and the salt would keep it from decaying. So it would take this thing that will naturally decay. If you don't do anything to it, it'll decay, it'll rot, it'll stink. It'll be a problem. Instead, you wrap that up in salt, and it preserves things that decay. And Jesus looks at his followers. He looks at what will be the church, and he says, you are the salt of the earth. Are there, are there things in our society that will naturally decay if they're not tended to? Pretty much everything. Pretty much everything. Families. If, if, if we don't tend to our families, they will decay and they will rot and those relationships will spoil. Communities, if they're not tended to, will decay. Society itself, if it's not tended to, will decay and rot and spoil and stink. And Jesus looks at the church and goes, this is your job. Get out there and wrap up your families, wrap up your communities, wrap up your society so that it doesn't decay. Well, how do they do that? Well, that's what the next three chapters of the sermon are all about. Then he tells them, you are the light of the world. And what does light do? Light pushes back darkness. It, it, it exposes things that were hidden. And what, what darkness is there in our world? Anywhere that there's rebellion against God, there's oppression, evil, injustice, Pride, greed, gossip, all of this is darkness. And these things thrive in darkness. But when they're exposed to the light, they lose their power. And Jesus says to the church, to his people, your job is to go into the world and expose these things so they lose their power. And you think, well, how are we supposed to do that? Well, that's what the next three chapters are all about. And those, that Sermon on the Mount is, it really hammers home an other's first mentality for followers of Jesus. Here's how you be salt. Here's how you be light. Others first. Others first in ways that don't make sense. Others first in the way, in the, in the way that in, in your culture, people would say, well, you, you have the right. You have the freedom to do this. But followers of Jesus say, no, others first. Others first. That's how we wrap up our community and our society and salt and protect it from decay. That's how we push back the darkness and we expose that which is evil so that it loses its power. Others first mentality is what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a follow-up. It's, it's the answer to the question, how do I be salt? How do I be light? Guys, we say this at the end of almost every service. It's like, all right, you're, we're going out to be salt and light. And some of you are like, yeah, yeah, salt and light. And we have no idea what that means. This is what it means. Others first. I will do what's best for you, even if it costs me. Okay, that's the church. All right, I, like we, we can talk about that for a long time, but we need to move on because there's, there's more. There's more. The church is not the end. The church is the what's happening now, but it's not the end. There is a new creation coming. And in the new creation, here's what uh, God says through John in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We know what that language is all about. That's what we call heaven, right? And when he says dwelling place here, guess what word he's using? The same word that the Greeks would have used for the tabernacle. 
God's tabernacle, his, the place where his presence shows up, the place where his glory is revealed, the place where he provides for and protects, where humans can enter with no guilt or shame or fear, there's coming a day when the kingdom of God and the world of people, it'll, it's just going to overlap. It's just going to be like the same place. That's what we call heaven. That's the new creation. When, when everyone who lives will, will honor Christ, will acknowledge God as the authority, and this is what we're looking forward to, and we're just, we're not there yet, and it's hard to see. Here's how Paul talks about it in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Like right now, it's hard, to, it's hard to picture this. It's hard to really grasp the glory of God. It's hard to really to understand what with God looks like. We're doing our best with what we have, but it's difficult. But he says, then we're going to see face to face. He says, now I know in part. I know a little bit. Like I, I get some glimpses because we've read Revelation. We get some glimpses, but it's confusing. So we don't really get the whole thing, right? Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. That there's coming a day when God's kingdom and the realm of humans will be one and the same. Where God's presence will be everywhere. His rule and reign will be absolute. Where all the humans who live there, live there with no guilt or shame or fear. But they're invited into perfect peace and joy and purpose through Jesus Christ. That's where we're headed. And I think sometimes we need to just lift our eyes up. We need to lift our eyes up from the struggle that's in front of us, maybe, maybe from the challenge that's in front of us, maybe from the comfort that's in front of us, the convenience, the ease of life that's in front of us. We need to lift our eyes up. And we need to see what God is inviting us into. This despair new creation, this place, where his rule and reign are absolute. No more death, no more sin, no more crying, no more pain. This is what God is doing now through the church. Salt and light is supposed to make a difference outside of the church. That's what he's called us to. He's saying, you're, you're in this space where you get to experience the presence of God and the glory of God and the protection and provision, the peace and joy and purpose. And I want you to now go into this space, and I want you to be salt that preserves the things that would naturally decay, and I want you to be light that pushes back darkness and exposes the things that are evil. And here's how you do that. Others first. Others first. I will lay down my rights if that's what's best for you. Others first. I will stand for you if no one else is standing for you. I will forgive you even when you're wrong and I'm right. If you slap me on one cheek, I'll turn the other one to you. Salt and light. That's, that's what we're all about. So this, I just want you to find yourself in this story. This is an incredible story, by the way, isn't it? Like if you track this from the very beginning and God's Eden and creation is a desire and then this limited witness that we got to have for a little while and then the church where we get, to, we get to be the presence of God to the people of the world and then we're moving towards this new creation where his rule and reign is absolute. This is us. This is our story and this is where we are right now and this is where we're going. We need to lift our eyes up sometimes just for a minute 
from the grind that's right in front of us and see what God is doing in the world and see what our part in that is. I, I want to invite you to pray with me about this and, and just to maybe explore this question of how am I participating in this kingdom? How am I participating in, in inviting other people to live under God's roof? How am, I, how am I a part of this? Am I really being salt and light or am I just going to church sometimes? Like, let's ask some of these difficult questions and see what God has to say to us in this. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for what you're doing in the world uh, to bring people into your kingdom under your roof. And we thank you that you uh, want to use the church, God, but we look around at ourselves and we look in the mirror and we, we recognize that we're, we're weak and we're often distracted and confused and sometimes we're just not real good at this. We thank you for your patience with us, but God, we ask you now to renew in us this desire, this aspiration to be a part of what you're doing and would you help us to take a step today in the direction of being, being salt and light in a way that invites other people into your kingdom and under your roof. Would you do that in us and for us and among us? We pray this in Jesus' name.